Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 424, Harroward, featuring Judas Priest. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Brian, Irina, and Hanyu for signing up already. If the story of Harroward wasn't what you were expecting, you're not alone. Researching all the twists and turns of this tale has been just as wild an experience as hearing it. In fact, between this episode and the last one, I came across a fascinating tidbit about our favorite French witch. Do you remember the story of Harroward following the old woman in the middle of the night as she went down to the nearby spring? And how, as Harroward spied on her, she was questioned by a watchman, And while the wake couldn't make out what they were saying, it appeared that the watchman started out as aggressive, but then became more friendly by the end of the conversation. Okay, so while I was reading that part of the record, I imagined it as a very literal account. There was a guy assigned to night watch duty, and his job was to keep an eye out for anything shady that was going on in the king's camp. To me, that seemed perfectly reasonable, and also, it seemed reasonable that the guard, upon realizing that she was a French woman, relaxed a bit and chatted with his fellow countrymen. For all we know, she probably reminded him of his grandmère. But, as I dug into the details of this one a little bit more, because the weirder the story, the more digging I like to do, well, as I was looking for more and more material about this bizarre tale, I came across some very important cultural context about that story of the witch. We've mentioned a few times in the show how water holds spiritual importance to many ancient cultures. And we've discussed this at length in the members' episodes. And cultures approach the spiritual power of water in many different ways. But for many cultures in Western Europe, part of what appears to have made water magical was its ability to reflect light. This seemed to translate the water from being understood not just as something that was important to life in general, but as a portal to other spiritual realms. And this was such a long-standing belief that even after the conversion to Christianity, many people believed that bodies of water were protected by their own guardian spirits. The Lady of the Lake, for example, is probably the most famous example of this for us today. But there were many versions of this story that were attached to many places with water. And springs are particularly special bodies of water. The source of the water in a spring is mysterious. It's not gathered from rain, like a river. It's not gathered from a river, like in the case of a lake. The water just appears from the earth. And it keeps coming. And if you already associate water with portals to another realm, well, a spring would be a pretty magical place. And so springs, like the one that the witch traveled to in the middle of the night, were understood by some people to have protective spirits. And so, when the witch spoke with the watchman, and when he was initially hostile, but then slowly became friendly to the old lady there are two interpretations. One is that it's a normal story about a guy stuck on night duty. But the other 
is that Harroward understood himself to be spying on a witch who was bringing the local spirits under her control. So this strange aside that seemed to go nowhere for us might have been an important element to the story, which would have been an obvious and very spooky point for its original audience. However, I suppose she probably should have spent a little time talking to some fire spirits as well, because we all know how that went for her in the end. But that's fun though, right? Anyway, so when we left off, things in Ely were on a knife's edge. It seemed like things could go either way, either victory or defeat for the rebels. And that's surprising, considering that one side of this conflict had the full military backing of England and Normandy. And the other side of the conflict had the full backing of um, some outlaws, a few monks, and a load of hungry refugee farmers. So you would think that the king and his horse bros would have had an easy time putting this thing down. But it turned out that Harroward's fortress on Ely was remarkably tough to breach. By taking refuge on an island surrounded by fens, they created some serious problems for William, and some fairly obvious ones. But beyond that, the uneven nature of those fens also created quite a puzzle for William. Because actually, there were some parts of the island where the fens weren't quite so wide, and as such, they would have been far easier to cross. And while that might seem like a clear advantage for William, the trouble was that Harroward and his band were more familiar with these lands than the Normans were. So they were well aware of those crossing points. And by the time that the Normans and their allies figured out where the easiest places were to cross, we're told that Harroward and his army had already established fortifications out of peat, wood, and other materials around the isle. And those ramparts were almost certainly thickest at the locations where the fens were narrowest. So faced with that, what's a brutal conqueror set on total domination to do? Take the easy crossing, only to charge face first into a heavily defended meat grinder? Or do you try and attack through a less obvious route, and thus hopefully cross where the defenses are weaker? But take the risk that you might drown all your ponies in the process. Well, so far, William had been going with option two, and that's why his men were doing things like making causeways and building rafts out of random logs and inflatable sheep bits. And the thought was probably that by positioning themselves on the west and attacking from Aldrith, where the fens were quite wide, that was their best chance at taking the English by surprise. But ultimately, William was learning the hard way that there's a reason why people don't usually launch a large-scale invasion through a swamp. After two failed attacks, his army had suffered catastrophic losses. And interestingly, one of these casualties may well have been our old friend, William Mallet, the Norman noble who had been sent to subdue Northumbria only to get captured himself along with his family by the rebels of York. Well, when the Northumbrian rebellion collapsed, he was lucky enough to have been released alive. And records suggest that he remained alive until right about this point. Now, we're not told specifically how he met his end, but considering the amount of military power that the king was directing at Ely, it's possible that Mallet, like so many of his compatriots, found his final resting place in the swamps of East Anglia. 
So this has been an absolute disaster for the new would-be landlords of England. And I know that this whole story sounds incredible, as in, it strains credulity. I mean, it literally includes a witch at one point, not to mention that parts of the account seem to contradict each other. And that fact is why I want to point out really clearly that this siege happened and that the casualties were very real and appear to have been quite significant. You see, the area around Ely is an archaeological treasure trove. We found spears, axes, and a variety of other weapons, all dating to the 11th century. And there are two typical explanations for these kinds of weapons being found the way they were. Either they were dropped as their owner fled battle, or they fell as their owner dropped right along with them. So we have physical evidence of the very same things that we've been reading about. It's confirmation that this really was a catastrophe for William and his new ruling class. But at the same time, they couldn't ignore Ely. Thanks to William's actions in Northumbria, England was now wrecked by the Great Famine of 1070 and 1071, which meant that the kingdom was absolutely full of very hangry people, and many of them were no doubt looking for an outlet for all that low blood sugar energy. And here was Ely, a hotbed of resistance, led by a man who was famous for beheading Normans and getting away with it. You don't need a crystal ball to see what was going to happen next if this rebellion wasn't stopped here and now. And even worse, Hereward's rebellion was rapidly expanding. This island wasn't just full of commoners and refugees. There were also a lot of the rich and powerful figures of England who were coming to Ely. And they were bringing their resources and their influence with them. Thanes, earls, abbots, deposed archbishops... All kinds of powerful Englishmen had been coming to Ely. So this posed a political danger to the occupation, in addition to the very real physical danger that Hereward and his band presented every time they went out and plundered a settlement or beheaded some Normans. So something had to be done. Unfortunately, that something was going to have to be handled by someone else because William needed to head back to Normandy. He had some pressing continental issues to deal with because the fact was that his home, the Duchy of Normandy, was part of France and France was chapped deep in chivalric culture, which meant that 11th century France was really putting the frat in fraternité. France was packed to its borders with illiterate, arrogant, and highly ambitious horse bros. And virtually every single one of them was convinced that things would be much better if they had more stuff. Specifically, more of their neighbor's stuff. Or the king's stuff, really, if it was available. You know, whatever's clever. So this terrifying culture was now turning into an equally terrifying economy. And France was exploding with violence. Honestly, if you're looking at the history of this era... You would be forgiven if you thought the main job of the king of France during this period was to put down internal revolts. King Henry I spent most of his reign quashing revolts, and the stress of that task was probably why he lived to the ripe old age of 52. And the throne hadn't got any healthier now that his son, King Philip, was sitting on it. By this point in his reign, 
I'm guessing that Philip was starting to wonder if he would have been much happier living as a cobbler or something. Because these vassals were a bunch of bastards. Especially that one who was an actual bastard. But at the same time, William wasn't the only grasping horse bro that Philip was worried about. He had a whole country to deal with. So an accord needed to be arranged with William so Philip could focus on the many, many other political fires that needed royal attention. And that's why Philip wasn't asking William to come back to France. He was telling. And that political dumpster fire is why England was currently without its usurper. I mean, king, right in the middle of a crisis. But don't get too excited about this. This wasn't all good news for Hereward. The fact was that William had plenty of commanders who could handle things in his absence. And none of them were the type of people who would take it easy on the English. As we've hinted at on this show, and as we talked about at length in the members episodes, the Norman nobility had incredibly traumatizing backgrounds. These guys all seem to have had childhoods that today would warrant their own six-part Netflix specials, and probably a few laws named after them. And for many of them, they endured all of that before they even saw their first battle. Cruelty and violence were normalized on a level that would be shocking for us to even hear about today, let alone see firsthand. Their lives, especially in the 11th century, were marked by rebellions, wars, betrayals, domestic abuse, imprisonments, nasty rumors, summary executions, exiles, assassinations, shitty nicknames, you name it. And there was a very good chance that it was your own family members who were behind all of this. We don't have a database of 11th century mental health surveys to explore, but I think it's safe to say that the Norman nobility were not healthy or happy people. And if you want to get a feel for French noble family life, Think about things like Succession, or The Sopranos, but with Spears. We're talking about families with generations of ruthless, backbiting history and murderous grudges. And they were often grudges that were held against themselves. I mean, consider this. William's father, Robert, had only become the Duke of Normandy because he rebelled against his older brother, Duke Richard III of Normandy. And then, whoops. Richard died, mysteriously, as often happens in this family. And then when William's dad, Robert, died, that left the poor little bastard William to rule the duchy. However, he was also too young to be duke, and a bunch of his family hated him. So he was placed under the care of his extended family members, who were supposed to act as his guardians. There was Count Gilbert of Brionne, there was Osborne the Steward, and there was Duke Allen of Brittany. And what followed was a bunch of political fuckery. But long story short, within a year, all three of the Guardians had been murdered, which would have been really shocking for young William, you know, unless he was behind it. It also would have been shocking for their sons, because all three of the Guardians had sons of their own. They were William Fitzosborne, Richard Fitzgilbert, and Duke Conan of Brittany. And in the aftermath, the boys became close with Duke William the Bastard. Well, actually two of them became close with Duke William. Duke Allen's son, Conan, on the other hand, was pretty sure that William had murdered his dad. And once he was old enough to rule, he just came out and said it. 
which is a bold move. I mean, if you were convinced that William had gotten away with assassinating the Duke of Brittany, would you, as the current Duke of Brittany, really want to be saying that out loud? You're basically saying that this guy is experienced at killing people who are just like you. And I'm sure it's a complete coincidence, but once Duke Conan of Brittany started making those accusations, he found himself poisoned pretty soon thereafter. A lot of convenient deaths in Norman history. But that's just Conan. The other two sons of William's guardians, William Fitzosborne and Richard Fitzgilbert, chose a different path. While they couldn't say for certain whether or not William was a murderer, they could say for certain that he was rich and powerful. And Fitzosborne and Fitzgilbert quite liked the idea of having a rich and powerful friend. Now, like William, they came from a blood-soaked and traumatizing background. And my armchair theory here is that that sort of environment creates a certain kind of person. And so it's possible that William was close to them because in them he found kindred spirits. Though, at the same time, I also suspect that their relationship was only ever going to end one of two ways. Either in friendship or in a convenient death. But, whether it was environmental or just happenstance, the fact remains that Fitzosborne and Fitzgilbert, like their benefactor, were famous for their brutality and their ruthlessness. Their life paths, following the murder of their fathers, were fairly similar as well. They are both close to William at a young age. They have both come to England with William during the initial crossing. They were both some of William's most trusted commanders. They both held powerful positions within his government. And they both wielded their proximity to power in ways that made them fantastically wealthy. Also like the king, they had been dealing with English aristocrats for years and long experience had shown them that there must have been at least a few rebels on Ely who were looking to cut a deal. Every time these English rebelled, there was a self-styled leader who was looking to profit from it. They just needed to find the right noble, apply a little pressure, and then let nature take its course. So these were the kinds of guys that were left in charge when William went to the continent. And one of the interesting elements of the Ely Rebellion that they had noticed was that it had a lot of members who were monks and other clergy. And these holy men weren't just sitting around and praying. They were taking part in military campaigns and going out on raids. So they weren't just hanging out with the rebels. They were rebels. And many of these holy men were monks from the monastery of Ely, which the king and his commanders knew thanks to the information that they gained from the knight Deda. And that, it turned out, told the commanders exactly where they needed to press to get a reaction. Because while the religious community was based on Ely, the monks, or more specifically, the monks' wealthy leadership, also owned lands outside of their marshy island fortress. And one of those properties was a monastery that was located about 30 miles to the west at Ainsbury. And this place was much easier to reach than that swampy patch of hell that they'd been trying to attack for God knows how long. And so William's ruthless childhood friend, Richard Fitzgilbert, gathered his men and rode out to Ainsbury. 
And by now, as you've been listening to this, some of you may have noticed some key differences between Ainsbury and Ely. I mean, first of all, there's the spelling. But more importantly, one of these monasteries was an open rebellion, and the other wasn't. I mean, yes, it was connected to Ely, but the monks and other religious people, not to mention countless lay people who were living and working in Ainsbury, were by definition not in rebellion. If they were in rebellion, they would have packed their bags and gone to Ely, which they hadn't done. So you might think that Fitzgilbert rode out to give them a handshake and thank them for their loyalty. And actually, while raiding monasteries was nothing new during this period, due to the fact that they were basically unguarded piggy banks, Fitzgilbert saw the truth of the situation. Raiding monasteries was a lowly act. Sure, they were unguarded and they held a lot of wealth, but riding in, stealing all of that, and then riding off was little more than banditry. It was the kind of crime that a commoner would engage in. And Fitzgilbert was no commoner. He was a knight. So he decided to do the knightly thing. He was going to steal the monastery and the monks. I mean, that's where the real money is. Let the peasants and outlaws steal gold and try and fence it. Fitzgilbert's eye was on the prize, the real moneymaker. And who was going to stop him? He had the blessing of his childhood friend, the king. And besides, Ainsbury was an absolute mess. There's pretty much no reason to raid it. It had already been plundered, likely by William's officers who had been seizing the wealth from English monasteries all over the kingdom. So other than the land and the people, what was there to steal anyway? Though at the same time, as far as the people went, that was a bit of a problem. It turned out that the monks and the people living in the monastery were in an absolute state. The Great Famine had devastated the kingdom and its people, and the monks were no exception. But whatever, might as well make the best of a bad situation. So Fitzgilbert ordered the charge, and he and his men stormed the monastery and attacked the holy men, intent on picking through whatever had been left by the previous nights. And the monks emaciated by starvation, couldn't even defend themselves. Some of them fled the carnage, but some of them didn't. Some were so sick and weakened from starvation that they couldn't even run. And that actually presented a problem for the knights, because if the monks stuck around, they might contest Fitzgilbert's claim on his newly acquired property. And if he had men just kill monks lying in bed, that might bum them out. What Fitzgilbert needed were the monks to just leave. But these English assholes were instead insisting on laying in bed while they starved and moaned, which is just unspeakably rude behavior. So, the knight came up with a plan. His men loaded the bedridden monks onto a ship and sent that ship to the Abbey of Beck in Normandy. We're told that the Norman monks of the abbey then kept these poor men imprisoned there for the rest of their lives in order to tame them. You know, like Jesus would have done. And given how the Normans treated the English, I can guess how these men of God went about this taming. And actually, the monks of Beck apparently had no problems with how all of this went down. 
and instead just didn't want to miss out on an opportunity because they quickly sent a delegation to England to take up residence at the newly depopulated monastery of Ainsbury. And so that's the story of how Fitzgilbert got his hands on Ainsbury and then placed it under the command of some Norman monks, all because King William was mad at a completely different monk that they were paying rent to. Hell of a thing, right? And unfortunately, this is just one story of many that were playing out all over the area. Because the Liber Eliensis tells us that all the properties belonging to the community at Ely were plundered, and that, quote, all those in the chief positions of power rejoiced and clapped their hands in applause and multiplied the frequencies with which harm was inflicted upon her estates, end quote. And the Gesta adds that this went well beyond plunder and that William had decided to hand out the properties of the rebels to his close companions, like Fitzgilbert. And I definitely believe that because that's totally on brand for William. This was one of his chief strategies for keeping his people close, and also how he motivated them to do awful things. And it appears that it wasn't just Fitzgilbert who was getting rich off of Ely. The whole gang was now getting involved in this theft. And pretty soon, the rebels learned about it. The thing is that the blockade around Ely wasn't perfect, so people could and did leave Ely from time to time. And one such person was Abbot Thurstan. It turns out that Abbot Thurstan was having some doubts about this rebellion. Things weren't looking good, and, well, as a man of means, he was keeping his eye on what really mattered. His stuff. As a monastery, Ely had quite a lot of treasure within it. Gold stuff, silver stuff, holy stuff, you name it. And if the island fell, then a bunch of these French-speaking horse bros were probably going to carry it all away. So Abbot Thurstan put on a disguise, and he snuck out to a hamlet that was about 15 miles to the south at Bodisham. And there, he hid all of his favorite stuff. But as he did so, he heard about how William and his men were seizing all the lands of the men of Ely. And that, well, that was bad. Because while relics are great and all, they don't provide regular income the way an estate does. And once those estates are gone, well, how on earth are the monks going to support themselves? Learn a skill? Become carpenters? Gross. So... Thurstan hiked up his robes and rushed back to Ely. Back at the base, he told the monks of what was happening to their property. And the monks were shocked. And they began to have second thoughts about this whole rebellion thing. Meanwhile, the Great Famine was also having a huge impact on the rebel camp. This rebellion had now been going on for quite some time. And as William's army pressed in and encircled the isle, it became increasingly difficult for them to renew their supplies. The blockade meant that it was now dangerous to go fishing, hunting, or foraging in the fens. At best, they might be able to send out raiding parties to plunder nearby communities and bring stolen food back to the isle. But the Liber Aliensis says that the monks of Ely were devout, and they refused to eat any food that had been stolen or taken through force which meant that they would only eat what had been previously stored at the monastery or what had been provided through honest means, 
like farming, hunting, and foraging. And while that's laudable, it also meant that the monastic food reserves had been exhausted. And so while the monks of Ely were learning that the knights were stealing some of their favorite things, they were also beginning to starve. And honestly, given the famine and the situation here, probably everyone on the island was. So we've got a bunch of hangry, traumatized folks crammed into a swampy island who didn't know what the knights were doing to their properties back home and also didn't know what was happening to their friends and family who were left behind. Tensions were rising and morale was collapsing. They might be able to win battles against William, but that was easy compared to the issue of food. Compounding their problems, William and King Philip had resolved their differences. And so the bastard was now back in England, and he was once again taking command of the blockade. Things weren't looking good, and the monks began to openly talk about how despondent they were. It's also possible that they began to talk about the need to surrender. Because the morale situation among the men of the cloth got so bad that the Lieber tells us that they were summoned by, quote, the captains who were guarding the city and the exit routes by water, end quote. Which almost certainly means that they were summoned by Hereward and the rebel leadership. And they told the monks that if they kept grousing, they'd be driven from the isle or handed over to the Normans. So faced with a crisis of confidence, the leadership were basically saying that the beatings were going to continue until morale improved. And this is going to shock you, but while the monks were terrified into silence, it didn't exactly harden them to the cause. Instead, they became bitterly indignant and depressed. Because threats are not how you bolster your comrades. It is how you build enemies, though. It was an absolutely terrible move on the part of Hereward and his captains. And it was a misstep that may have happened because they were also starving. I've been hangry once or two in my life. and Never has anyone accused me in that state of being level-headed or diplomatic. But as understandable as this error was, it was still catastrophic. The big strength of this rebellion was the unity of the army. Soldiers and monks lived together, they ate together, they fought together. But as soon as they stopped eating together and began starving together instead, that unity shattered. The monks, now thoroughly convinced that this was going to end in disaster, started to refuse to take part in missions. And instead, they began to gather in secret with Abbot Thurstan to work out a plan because they were sick of being rebels. They didn't want victory over William, at least not anymore. All they wanted was a decent meal and a comfy bed, and most importantly, their properties. And once Hereward and some of his companions were out in the field, foraging for supplies, Abbot Thurstan saw his opportunity. He and some of his monks snuck out of the aisle and fled to the Norman lines. There, they asked for a meeting with King William, because Abbot Thurstan had an offer. He would show William where the rebel defenses were weakest. He would use his position of authority to convince the common folk within the isle to abandon the resistance. 
He would help William time his attack so that he could ensure that Hereward was away from the camp when the Normans advanced. And all he wanted in return was the promise that the king would treat him well and give him his stuff back. The king, upon hearing this offer, accepted. And Thurstan returned to Ely to make good on his promise to the conqueror and deceive his own flock. I'm sure listening to this, you've all had the same thought at one point or another. There have been so many rebellions with such broad support. How did the English lose this thing? Well, here's your answer. It wasn't the average Englishman. It wasn't the frontline fighters or the peasants who risked their lives on the battlefield. It was the aristocrats. These nobles who drew enormous incomes on the promise that they would lead and faithfully carry out their duties, betrayed their own people in exchange for a payday. And they did it again and again and again. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Reddit, and you can find links to that in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>